Are you ready to help decide the winners of the Servi Awards? Our award that recognizes the front of house all-stars that keep the restaurant industry going? After receiving close to 8,000 nominations from all 50 states, our industry judges have selected 40 finalists. But it's up to you to decide who wins the Servi's trophy, a pair of free snib shoes, and a $3,000 tip. Three thousand dollars. Visit theservies.com to meet the finalists and hear their stories. From Montana to Florida, there are some fantastic stories of folks who make us proud to work in this industry. You can vote once per category every single day through September 17th. This is just one of the many ways we're working to make life a little better for the restaurants we love, and there's more good stuff to come. Vote today at theservies.com. Now here we go. Going and finding opportunities to add restaurants to markets and streets and neighborhoods that actually need more restaurants has definitely been part of our strategy. And I think in any business, if you don't know what your edge is, you don't have one. And without an edge in this business, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. David Morton is a restaurateur and a student of the game. His ambitions go beyond making food or money. He's trying to make a difference. David is blazing new trails in our industry, establishing partnerships and opening restaurants in ways that have never been done before. In this episode, I sat down with him to discuss his family's restaurant legacy and how the businesses he's building today will influence the restaurant industry of tomorrow. My father was pretty outspoken about us doing something else prior to going into the restaurant business. He thought it would just offer you know, a more well-rounded experience in restaurants. I'm the only one that took him up on it. So I had time in the finance space. I started my first business actually in college where I was promoting rap and R&B shows up in Madison, Wisconsin, ultimately knowing that I wanted to be in the restaurant space. But those experiences prior to had a really profound effect on everything I did subsequently within restaurants. And I think it offered me new ways to think and different ways to think about all the moving parts of our industry. The Morton's brand is super successful, but I can't, I haven't met any restaurateurs ever. And I've been talking to them for two and a half years. I've done 250 plus interviews. And it's not easy for anyone. So I can't imagine that you didn't see your dad stressed out, struggling, overwhelmed, overworked. Well, I guess to start, was that the case? And if that was, what about this looked good to you? My dad, I don't know if I would describe him as being uh, stressed out and overworked. I think he was definitely someone that had like an extreme passion for what he did. That said, in the rearview mirror, as you're describing... Morton's is obviously well-known and has a great history associated with it, but it's only one of tens of different concepts that he developed. So, of course, had a front row seat to all other things that you wouldn't necessarily know about my father, including the myriad of places that some were successful but kind of ran their course, some weren't successful, and Morton's was his one legacy that he was able to leave behind You know, as it continues to be alive and well. But it wasn't without a strong appetite for 
exploration and creativity for himself, I think rubbed off on all of us, as well as an element of stick-to-itiveness that I think the industry requires and a greater vision than simply the outcome for any given project. But I think feeling connected to a greater cause than simply seeing how many concepts he can develop or restaurants he can develop. And what was your intention going into the industry? What was your vision for yourself, for your life, for the kind of business you wanted to create? So had a really kind of two kind of thoughts before we started DMK. The first thought was, so it was about 2007, 2008. And if you looked out across the dining landscape nationally at that particular time, it felt like there had been not a lot of exploration within the intersection between qualitative offerings and a casual setting. And there's lots of historical remnants around that are great companies and and great brands, but hadn't kind of evolved much over whatever their history may have been at that time, if it was 10, 20, 30 years. So that was one thing was thought like there is an opportunity here to explore it through that lens specifically. And as I think our industry continues to, as probably all industries do, be affected by is that the rate of change happens so fast. So I mentioned that because it became obvious to us while we were exploring our first brands and developing them, while they were really successful and we were really proud of them, there was clearly lots of other people looking and thinking about the same problem, about how do you take really kind of the best of culinary from a qualitative standpoint, from an expertise standpoint, the core tenets of hospitality and creating kind of contagiously memorable environments and things that were accessible to people. So that was one thing that we were kind of keenly interested in. And the second, which is still something that I'm really passionate about, is trying to answer the question, as the second largest employer in the country as an industry, why isn't it that we lead? Why is it that we tend to follow? Why are we often looking for inspiration from outside industries for best practices? And what might leadership look like in our case? So what we were really focused on was the human component. And also other components as well, including like environmental, et cetera. But I think that quite honestly, I think our industry is, it doesn't have standards for excellence that is moving towards, and we're really committed to it on our end, of being a standard for excellence in how it takes care of its people, the work environment, the cultures that it builds, how it creates retention and longevity, how it offers careers as well as jobs, how we can be mindful of kind of you know our footprint. Um, was also something that we were really interested in at the time. So the combination of those two concepts were highly motivating for kind of the the genesis kind of original thinking behind DMK. So for me, I've never really questioned why we don't lead. And it's because for me, it's a function of profitability. It's hard for us to treat our teams humanely because we don't treat ourselves humanely because we don't have enough money. And so my question to you would be, have you figured out a blueprint for success or profitability in this industry that gives you the funds you need to be able to lead in the way that you envision? Because I'd like to buy some of that myself. (laughs) All right. Well, I can sell it to you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We've been extremely conservative in how we've modeled our business. And In all fairness, I can think of a lot of other industries that are much more capital intensive. I think it goes without saying that one of the reasons why I think some of these problems arise isn't necessarily a scarcity of capital, 
but instead lower barriers to entry. It actually is fairly capital efficient if you know what you're up to, and I'm happy to share with you kind of how we think about that. And it doesn't necessarily require a lot more than just a dream and a bit of experience. And so I think that is what brings lots of people into the industry, which is incredible. But we've been very methodical from the onset in thinking about how it is that a restaurant gets capitalized, how projects get capitalized, how that fits into a larger formula, and how it is that we can kind of ideally, of course, increase the outcome of the possibility of success in the outcome, which I think is highly doable. And I think that, honestly, I feel like within our industry at large, I think we're seeing a lot more longevity than we saw back in the day when I grew up in it, when my father was an anomaly. And today, I think both of us know lots of people that have enjoyed lots of success. Sure. Where we started too with kind of the lessons I saw from my father, it's not a linear path. It's not all roses. It's certainly not easy. But I think that through technology, through information sharing like this, and kind of transparency and kind of knowledge of what works and what doesn't, just access to information through the internet and otherwise, I think our track record is improving dramatically as an industry. So we approached it at the early onset with coming out of finance and with the backgrounds that I came with. That was definitely part of it as well, was wondering about how is it that we can model this out differently in such a way that would increase our likelihood of success. And I'm happy to share with you what some of those tenants are. I want all of them. Okay. Before I get into the particulars of it, you know, I think any business, and we own other businesses outside of restaurants as well, require a tremendous amount of discipline. Restaurants are no exception. And I think maybe one of the most challenging parts of any business, including restaurants, as you've probably known from your own experience, is you can share formulas and methods with others, but you can't necessarily show them how to follow them. That's where I think the rubber hits the road and where the outcome really is created. So... Our original thesis was thinking about how it was if we... So my first business that I started in college was uh, promoting, as I mentioned earlier, rap and R&B concerts. And I called my father from Wisconsin. We had an opportunity to promote Cypress Hill. (laughs) And I called my dad and said, we have this opportunity. A, can I borrow some money? (laughs) And B, how do we think about it? And he loved it. And he was so excited. And he said, okay, it's really simple. When you do the math, just know that, assume that you only do half as well as you think you would otherwise do. And if that outcome can create a break even, then I would definitely move forward. So if we translate that to restaurants today, is first of all, one of our accountants once told me that he's never seen a pro forma he doesn't love, right? (laughs) And so it's easy to model things out for these outcomes that are these kind of artificial high in the sky scenario. So first and foremost, being really sober and conservative and how it is that you model these businesses out. And if your base case is X, then I would recommend dividing by two, for example, in what your revenue forecast is going to be. So that's the first step is kind of thinking about it from a revenue outcome standpoint. Then our model is that we will then work backwards and apply a capital investment of 25% of our annual forecasted revenues in the most conservative scenario. So in other words, you know, a simple example is if we, in our most conservative scenario, to use simple round numbers, forecast that think that we can do a million dollars in annual revenues, we won't allocate over $250,000 in capital to that project. So that requires a lot of creativity and cleverness, obviously, to achieve that, right? So how does that affect your lease? How does it affect, you know, kind of a relationship with a landlord? How does it affect a source of funds and such? 
I think first and foremost, what can be frustrating about this business is when sometimes we feel like we've gotten it right everywhere except for the P&L, right? We see that we've got a busy restaurant that's active, that's beloved, and it's popular in the media and was filled with regulars, but it doesn't translate to the P&L or it doesn't translate to an ROI that we were hoping to achieve. I think starting there is first and foremost a really kind of hopeful place to begin. And again, it does force and impose lots of discipline in the actual business planning itself. To that end, something that I've been saying forever that was just one of the interesting takeaways from my father was that he used to always preach to us that 99% of restaurants fail before they ever open. Couldn't be more true. And I think a lot of it is in that thinking there itself. I think having the ability to measure outcomes at a high level of frequency also has a discernible effect on performance. So I think it's safe to say that if you look at the industry holistically, there's probably a relatively small minority percentage of people that A, even get accurate financial information about their business. Then there's probably a subset of they get it, but they get it at you know, a certain level of frequency. Let's say they maybe they get it every month or on a period basis. I think part of our success is rooted in the commitment that we have to doing full P&Ls down to the penny every week for every restaurant. If we do that 52 times a year and our competitors are doing it maybe once a month or maybe once every four weeks, by design, we have a huge competitive advantage in how it is that we can kind of keep our ear to the tracks and continue to kind of pivot and modify what we're up to. A third tenant of it is that I think is really key to overall longevity, which fits within that kind of measurement notion, is we can all be optically rooted in some thinking about what we like conceptually. And let's say, for example, that it's burgers. Part of what I think is important is that's only a thesis going into a business. And to really have an awareness and a mindset and an openness to modification and change over time through measurement is really important. So in all of our menus and all of our concepts, while we might say, hey, we're doing X, we spend a lot of time rounding out our menus and making sure that we haven't missed an opportunity to measure guest preference in non-obvious ways about clues about diner preference at a location that allows us the opportunity to pivot. So I think part of it also isn't getting too narrowly rooted in a thought, not getting overly committed to a belief, and not being too narrow in kind of mindset about what it is that we're creating and having an openness about change and doing it at a level and pace of frequency has a huge effect on outcomes, in my opinion. I look at your portfolio and I see that you've built a demand engine right? That you're going into areas, you're meeting existing unmet demand, which is brilliant. But at the same time, these are very different businesses in very different tiers of dining. How do you get it right every time? Because the path for a fine dining restaurant is not the path for a fast casual. I mean, first and foremost, we definitely don't get it right every time. (laughs) And we love that, right? I mean, it sometimes can catch people off guard that are newer to the team when I walk around and I'm a big believer in managing by walking around and talking to people closest to the action as opposed to kind of managing from the ivory tower. But I am always like to ask people what they've had the opportunity to screw up. And people will look at me a little bit askew because they assume that as the leader of this business that I'm seeking something other than a failed outcome. So definitely have that element is really central to 
a desire for kind of perpetual small failure and self-criticism in a healthy way, but that has a lot of curiosity associated with it. The second thing is, is that, you know, what I found is needless to say, would try to omit the fact that it's all about the people, right? It's all about the team. But our thought about team in general is that we do best in hiring either freshmen or seniors, and we like to mix our teams. You know, for obvious reasons, freshmen come in with a really keen interest in learning and malleability and change, et cetera. And seniors obviously are rooted in lots of experience and kind of are able to impart shared wisdom. So ongoing struggle for our industry, not only from the supply side of labor, but all the parts of labor, which is the big asset that we manage at the end of the day, is really kind of fundamental to the outcomes. And I lead just by asking questions. Expertise terrifies me. I don't consider myself an expert. In my opinion, I think the people that continue to grow and develop and, and also build cultures that enable change and people to thrive, you know, is seeking to understand as much as anything else. We also like to increase the probability, to your point, this notion of kind of meeting demand is a great way to say it. In kind of what I typically call as fishing where there's not a lot of boats. And I think to that end, COVID's been a godsend to the industry, dare I say but also going and finding opportunities to add restaurants to markets and streets and neighborhoods that actually need more restaurants is definitely been part of our strategy. And I think in any business, if you don't know what your edge is, you don't have one. And without an edge in this business, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. Seeing what was possible and going from good to great, you're gonna learn something. Hearing different perspectives from different people in the group have inspired ideas or concepts that I've used since then that there's no way I would have ever come up with on my own. You pull it out of this as much as possible. When the well is dry, you pour a bucket in there and then tell us, now get it out. We could have been just as lost as when we started if all we got was, here's how to do it, go. These folks are independent restaurateurs, just like you, but they have one massive advantage that you don't. They have a proven plan. I'm launching my next restaurant marketing mastermind that brings together 12 owners and operators looking to massively scale revenue by working with me and by working with each other. This mastermind is so effective, we offer a money back guarantee. So if you're interested in scaling your restaurant's revenue with a program that is guaranteed to work, apply today at restaurantmarketingmastermind.com. Again, that's restaurantmarketingmastermind.com. You might think being on the line and filling those tickets is the thing you need to do for your restaurant, but every burger you make is a marketing call or video that you didn't make to drive more sales into your restaurant to make things better. Let's talk about innovation and get back to the idea of going where other people aren't because you are carving out these new niches within our industry. Talk to me about the future of the power launch and how you're partnering with real estate developers to make that happen. So it's probably the most exciting part of what we're doing as an organization right now. The real estate world kind of continues to, needless to say, evolve. And it's gone through some really interesting kind of cycles as of late for obvious reasons. If you look before COVID, I think lots of landlords were, like anybody else, wondering how to make the real estate more competitive. And if you look at the larger commercial space, they were wanting to add amenities to their buildings to improve tenancy, maybe have an opportunity to have just more demand to increase rents, et cetera. 
Then COVID came. The conversation changed a little bit. And the conversation changed where people were recognizing that we were going through some type of crisis. If you look at the history of all crises in any industry, if you look all the way back to autos in the 20s, or you look at Tech 2000, or you look at real estate 1991, look at the Great Recession 07, 08, there's always a flight to quality. So for really premier real estate companies, which you know we've been so blessed and, and fortunate to be partners with, they've had a really keen instinct as far as that's concerned. Now, a lot of the discussion is obviously about return to work, which we're seeing lots of activity on and extremely bullish on return to work. We've all noticed you know, as day-to-day operators that guest preference has yet again changed. And to this notion of kind of how it affects our outlets, be it power, lunch, or otherwise, we've seen that people are social creatures. We're seeing where we have, because our, a lot of our projects have very large footprints, which is part of our strategy as well, because we'd like to have really diverse revenues that come from lots of different sources, including kind of private events and you know BEOs and such. But people are eager to get together. If nothing else, I think for those that are choosing to work remote, I think that definitively is going to become a thing of the past. And the reason why I think that is, just briefly, is what I think is confounding at a macroeconomic level right now is we're reporting as a country record low unemployment while we're also recording record low productivity. And I think that the the obvious catalyst for that is remote work. And you can see it also just, you know, you can look into any market right now and you can see so much activity that's happening on the leasing side, et cetera. But meanwhile, while there might be those that choose to work in their pajamas all day, and this might not be the most popular thing to say, lunch is the new meeting, dinner is the new meeting. They still need to take a shower, get out of the house, get together, be social, build culture, et cetera. So I think that we found certainly everywhere, I'm sure you've seen it and, and your listeners have seen it, that the collision of people being knock on wood, maybe COVID going, you know, being more in the rearview mirror, coupled with no matter how we're getting this need to get together and be social, is making our industry, you know, I think return at a much faster rate than maybe some had anticipated. Let's talk about the landing. Manhattan is a brutally competitive market for restaurateurs, and you guys are killing it. What did the plan look like to launch it? And how has that resulted in success by, I would argue, all metrics? So our attraction to the project, first and foremost, became because of our partner, Bornado, who I think an objective truth is they are the most outstanding owner, developer, operator in the field, uh, bar none. They get the playbook, I think, 10 years before anybody else. When we were presented the opportunity to do the landing in kind of the newly burgeoning Penn District, it just only made sense on so many fronts. So if you look at it on a location basis, one is is that, again, we thought of it a little bit as one of these scenarios where we were fishing where there weren't a lot of boats, where the location is, while it is so incredibly central, you know, it's the epicenter of Manhattan in so many ways, and it's above Penn Station, it's in Moynihan, it's across from Madison Square Garden, it's the center through Vornado of what's becoming kind of the most exciting center of gravity for real estate development, certainly in the country and arguably, you know, potentially the world, that combination of factors made a ton of sense to us. We had an experience working with Fornado in Chicago. We're partners there at the merchandise mart that they own as well, which is just a remarkable property. 
on so many levels, including the fact that, interestingly, it's the largest piece of real estate in the country after the Pentagon. It has its own train stop, its own zip code. So we thought that in combination from a location standpoint, from a visionary standpoint, from a track record, an existing relationship that we had with a truly beloved and valued partner, and with a bit of knowledge about kind of what they were doing at large within what's becoming the Penn District, we couldn't jump in fast enough. So I think what's driving its popularity are a few things. One is we can see definitively, again, people are returning to work at a very fast pace. I think the broadness of appeal, Vornado was very keen on wanting to, you know, kind of have it represent the overall ethos of what they're doing, which is kind of a big hug, as somebody from Vornado mentioned it to me. And how to apply hospitality to not only what we're doing at Pen One, but also kind of what that looks like in every facet of the building. What does it mean when you walk into work in the morning? What are the other amenities associated with it? For example, they've got an incredible fitness facility here that is like, you know, pick your favorite spa. They have, in my opinion, and we've seen lots of them, the finest example of flex work in partnership with Industrious. And so if I blindfolded you and brought you to the property and took it off and welcomed you to my new favorite hotel in the country, you would believe me. So there's an ethos to it. There's an energy to it. I think that works really well. At the restaurant level, again, we kind of came and within this hug, they wanted to make sure that we developed ideas and creativity that people wouldn't get tired of and that people would want to come back hopefully two, three times a week, you know, tenants or neighborhood in general. So again, broadness of thought, measurement, et cetera, that strategy and tactic continues to pay dividends in this context. We've learned a lot about the local market, obviously, as we've gotten here. Hopefully made quietly tons of mistakes as we've kept our curiosity high and and continue to pivot around. And at the end of the day, I think that if you stand, if you've got a really highly qualitative product, really contagious hospitality, and taking care of our teammates and staff the way that we take care of our guests, and most importantly, at a really great value, that combination is at the risk of sounding cavalier, I think is the most conservative, effective path we can take as operators. What are mistakes that you've made or your team has made or your company has made that you would hope that uh, people listening would avoid? Early mistake was balance sheet. Again, you could look through economic cycles with our industry or any other industry, and ultimately, you know, the long-term battle is one not necessarily on the P&L, but it's one on the balance sheet. So in the early part of the model, we leveraged certain areas, and through good fortune, it was accretive to us at the particular time, but it occurred to me eventually that the ultimate path, as you described before, you mentioned, we are this way because of the margins, Right. And if that's a true statement, which let's, which obviously it is a relatively low margin business, anything that disrupts that can be very corrosive. And I think it was also a reason why we cruised through COVID and grew through COVID as we came, we were one of the few companies that I know that's our size with our growth that has zero debt. So I think managing your balance sheet as carefully as you manage your P&L is really, really important. So to you know, learn some lessons the hard way there, wondering again, looking at our P&L, like why aren't we doing as well as we thought you would, but then seeing the effects of having a third party at the table that was only by option, i.e. you know, an interest-bearing loan was corrosive. I think 
other key lessons that we've learned, which are literally constant, is that it's not about us. I think it sometimes can be hard when you go through enormous work that we can all appreciate that goes into the creative process and create goes into birthing something that is rooted in a vision and in the thesis and being open to the fact that we're probably wrong. And if we're getting it right, we are going to be wrong. And for younger players in the business, I think that's extremely challenging. I think there's a generation that's very young right now that grew up playing on sports teams where it was always a seven-way tie for first place. There were no losers, <laughs> right? And we seek that out. So we are constantly measuring and so continually finding ways in which you know the thesis was wrong. And we opened up office hours at, at Pen one as well to solve what we thought was a really difficult problem, which is how do you change perception around kind of gourmet grab-and-go? which we've all, I think, just been so scarred by from airports and otherwise. And it was a really interesting litmus test because we had so many, it's a full store that has lots of different things that we offer and sell. And our thesis was super flawed at the onset, not in a bad way, but we had a little nook of kind of, in addition to all the things that we knew were obvious, we're going to have like really beautiful, freshly prepared salads and sandwiches and the incredible culinary team, like truly one of the best culinary teams we put together. That, of course, we wanted to have a few kind of made-to-order hot items. And those are the items that really flew off the shelf. And if, without really being open to the fact that that was even a potential outcome, it was not the thesis. And it's, it's somewhat obvious in retrospect, but it was very profound for us. I think to that end, too, of just kind of this openness to change and culture is to trust everybody, people around us, and to trust ourselves, but also knowing that we're all active players in the game within this industry because all of us eat obviously all day and ignoring recommendations all the way down to the dish room is a fool's errand and everybody in my opinion should have that seat at the table which is why most of us when we walk into our restaurants you know we like to go and, and visit with every single person on the team if only for a couple of minutes not only to make a positive emotional deposit you know to those around us but to see if there's any opportunities, even on the most unsuspecting areas that sometimes even we have from time to time overlooked. So coming with a growth mindset, and if you don't, as you described before, and as we all know, I mean, it's the only industry that I know of where every day we're in the purchasing, receiving, storage, manufacturing, marketing, public relations, operations, I can go on and on business. It takes a whole village, but it takes an army to do it effectively. And so how to build a culture around that as opposed to, I think, early when I didn't have this confidence and felt like I needed to have all the answers and that day people were looking to me for everything, I was happy to kind of make it up, so to speak, not literally, but somewhat figuratively, recognizing that through a culture of creativity and curiosity can have the biggest effect, I think, on the outcome. The restaurant industry is filled with unspoken rules and traditions around how things should be done. How would you like to see the industry, right? How would you like to see the industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? I mean, I think what is happening at kind of a, from every vantage point is, is helping our industry dramatically. So first, we think of our business in kind of the five Ps, people, place, product, profit, and promotion, right? So if you look at the place for starters, the physical plant that we work in every day, we're fortunately getting some help and guidance from just a regulatory standpoint, which I think is really important. 
So if you look at a city like New York that's eminently going to be, you know, require eminently electric is, I think, really helpful, right? We have a really poor track record as an industry for being positive environmental stewards. And I think that's a way in which we can take a leadership role. I think the opportunity at the educational level is growing, and I think it will continue to grow. And something that I've been outspoken about and, and like to work the phone, so to speak, and put into leadership's ears at the university level is I think a lot of our industries had a really awesome orientation towards trade schools, which I'm a huge believer in because it's such an inclusive industry that way. But how is it as an industry that we're actively involved in higher education to continue to have a really thoughtful, bright, educated class of employees as well? And I do think that is coming and is part of the future. I think we're going to see a continually younger employee base. And I think that's going to be driven by lifestyle. I think one of the things that our industry offers in spades that nobody will ever be able to compete with is this level of flexibility associated with doing your job. That's, needless to say, becoming very in demand, partially through COVID and otherwise. That's something I think that as an industry we should be celebrating and promoting. Where else do you get to go to work every day where you get to listen to incredible music, work on pretty much a flexible schedule, be paid fairly, hopefully come and learn how to take care of people, which I would argue is maybe one of the best skills any of us can learn in life, or if only for creating internal happiness, let alone for those around us. So I think from a culture standpoint, I think that's really powerful and, and that's evolving. And I think the biggest thing I think that we'll see in the next decade as an industry is where we can ultimately continue to lead is all of the applications of hospitality outside of four walls dining. I think finally the rest of the world has woken up to the fact that in a service setting, there's so many tenants of hospitality that can benefit from. As usual, I'll be back on a plane tonight where I seem to spend half my life. And should I go to the airport and have an issue with my ticket and go and speak to somebody at the United desk, for any of us, that person is the brand of United. That's United. No different than our frontline employees are the brand to the guest. It's not the name of the place or the color scheme or other things. It's the people that are actually driving the outcome on behalf and acting as an agent on behalf of the guest. So what are those applications that look like So in other places? And TMK does a lot of work for other industries and other places to help them think about that. I think there's so many useful skills that we have that can be used by other industries if they look internally about how they take care of each other from a culture building standpoint, to how it is that they use more tenants of hospitality as opposed to service, which I think many of us know are subtly different to apply to building their own brand. So I think that's a really interesting potential future outcome for the hospitality space as well. I think things that are going to become challenging for it is I think that the, you know, our early part of our conversation, the cost associated with developing restaurants is continuing to rise. It is right now because we're in an inflationary environment for any space, but I'm not alluding to that. What I'm describing is instead this beautiful new economy that we're living in that's, you know, this overused notion of experiential economy is what the, the consumer is demanding. And that does require, I think, additional resources build out from new stores. Or if we just learn from the likes of McDonald's, dare I say, 
I don't know if this is still the case, but there was a long history of McDonald's where if you're a franchisee, you had to manage a reserve fund so that every three years you added a new physical plant feature to keep your store fresh. And I think, you know, as the landscape again becomes more and more competitive post COVID, I think the industry is going to continue to acquire those resources in this low margin world to make sure that our outlets are compelling, fresh, stimulating, and exciting for, you know, new and returning diners. That's David Morton. For more on his restaurants, visit dmkrestaurants.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.